This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange with a series of podcasts exploring Kubrick's work and his relationship with Burgess. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Graham Foster talks to Georgina Orgill, the Stanley Kubrick archivist at the University of the Arts, London. Georgina manages, preserves and promotes research into the Stanley Kubrick archive and is currently co-editing two volumes on Kubrick. She is also a series editor for Liverpool University Press's Kubrick series. Georgina, thank, thanks for joining us on the Burgess Foundation podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the the Kubrick archive and the, and the relationship that has with Burgess's work and archive in Manchester. Georgina, tell me in general, what is the the scale of the Kubrick archive and what sort of artifacts does it hold? So the archive is is really big. Um, it's nearly 900 linear metres of material. And that's obviously quite a rough estimate. It will be tens of thousands of items, but we don't have a sort of an itemised list of, of how, exactly how many items that we have. We measure in linear metres. Um, so it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty big. If you, you know, if you put it end to end, you've got nearly a kilometre of, of boxes there. Okay, and, and other items that are still to be catalogued is the catalog process ongoing yeah i mean well cataloging an archive is sort of always an ongoing process it's a bit like painting the fourth row bridge or something because we so most of the archive is catalogued um but not all of this is catalogued to item level so we have some parts of the archive that are catalogued to what we would call series level, where it's, you know, a sort of a larger portion of material. So eventually, hopefully, we'll be able to catalogue sort of more uh, in a more granular way. But then there's also kind of recataloguing. You know, we, we might catalogue something and then later on want to change that description because we discovered something new about it, because the process of cataloguing an archive is always involves this kind of almost like detective work, trying to work out often what things are when you don't have very much context, or especially if they're just rough notes. So most of the archive is catalogued, but we don't have every single item catalogued, and there'll always be more to do. And, and more specifically, what, what does the archive reveal about A Clockwork Orange and the creation of, of the film? Yeah, so in a way, the archive can kind of only reveal so much. Um, because whilst the Kubrick archive is is really unique in how how complete it is, you know, Kubrick really did keep a lot of material. Obviously, not everything will have been kept. Um, but one of the things I think that you get from A Clockwork Orange, the sense that you get when you look at the material, is the importance of location to the film. So there's more location research for this film that was kept um, than for most of the other films, I would say, um, in, until you really get to Eyes Wide Shut. So that's sort of it is comparatively unusual um, in that sense. And you also really get a sense of the, the sort of design references. We have, you know, things like uh, loads and loads of research into architecture and uh, furniture magazines and things like that, that that are kept. So you really get, and obviously A Clockwork Orange has such a kind of strong visual, visual look. You really get a sense of that. Um, the other thing I think is... It really kind of reveals a collaborative, the, sort of the collaborative nature of making the film. So the archive, you know, it kind of reveals us about all the films, but there are sort of ideas, there are letters um, that show, you know, how much Kubrick was was collaborating and working with other people um, and really giving them quite a lot of 
creative freedom and um, really sort of taking their ideas on board. So you really get this sort of sense of it being a very collaborative process, which I think is very different to the way that people often perceive Kubrick as a director. Um, but unlike some of the films, we don't have as much correspondence. So for some films, for example, for 2001 A Space Odyssey, we have huge amounts of correspondence. And that's because um, at that point, especially in the sort of 60s, it was common to keep carbon copies of letters that were sent out. So we have a copy of all of those letters, whereas that didn't seem to happen on the production of A Clockwork Orange. So sometimes it's difficult to fill to fill these gaps. Um, sort of it in the narrative just because those letters you know were sent out to other people including to Burgess um right and and in terms of that collaboration how how involved was was Burgess in that collaboration or we have letters from Stanley Kubrick in the Burgess archive but how how do you think the two men worked together to create a Clockwork Orange I think from the archive, it, it can be difficult, as I said, because we really don't have very much correspondence. The correspondence that we do have, which is really sort of about, um, you know, it's it's more focused on uh, the practicalities of me meeting and things like that, um, is very warm. And it, it definitely shows that they, I think, worked well together or certainly got on well together sort of during the process. But as I say, because of the sort of lack of, the lack of correspondence, it's quite difficult from just the Kubrick archive to, to be able to sort of paint a picture of their collaboration. And that's, again, it's different because for other films, we do have more that shows kind of the, the collaboration between Kubrick and an author. So there's much more correspondence between, for example, Kubrick and Clark um, for 2001. Um, but as I say, that's because of these carbon copies, we get a sense of, of both sides of that correspondence. Um, but I definitely think that the Burgess archive actually almost has more, <laughs> more of the correspondence between um, the two men than we do. Right. And, and and what can we learn about Kubrick's relationship with authors in general? You mentioned Arthur C. Clarke there. Um, did he, I mean, Kubrick as a director was a director who adapted pretty much mm. every single one of his films. Uh, is that is that right? Yeah, mainly. Um, so the relationship really varies. As I said, like Arthur C. Clarke and, and Kubrick worked very closely together, despite the fact that they were in different countries. Um, we have a huge amount of correspondence that kind of shows shows that collaboration. But then with other authors, he didn't really um, work as closely with them. So it really does depend. For some films he did, for some films he didn't. And, you know, for some films he may have done, but we don't have the sort of surviving material that would show that. So, um, yeah, it really varies throughout the throughout his career um, as to how closely he chose to work with the, the original author of the work. Does that correspond to how closely the the films uh, are adapted from the books. For example, The Shining is very, very different from the book. Um, does that alter the way he collaborated with, with authors or, or is that too hard to say, perhaps? I think that's an interesting question, actually. Um, I'm not sure if... I mean, it might be related in that because he wasn't working as, as, much, as closely with an author, he then adapted further away from the original kind of source material. Um, but again, the the lack of sort of archival documentation of that makes it difficult for me to sort of say that sort of definitively. I think certainly 
the the film that we have the most material for is 2001 a space odyssey but that was an unusual um process in that it's not a sort of straight adaptation of a novel the novel was written alongside the film um you know by clark and and the screenplay was was written between the two of them so it's a, it's a slightly different it, it's not really an adaptation although there is actually a novel <laughs> um right yeah um, so that's probably the closest, I think, in terms of, as in the, the, the largest collaboration. Um, a Clockwork Orange is, you know, uh, is, is quite a close adaptation. Um, and I think certainly, although, as I said, there's not a huge amount that survives in the archive, what we do have suggests that the two of them sort of got on. Um, whereas, you know, something like The Shining, we really don't have any correspondence at all between Kubrick and Stephen King. Right. So, yeah. yeah, and of course Burgess wrote a script which was rejected for A Clockwork Orange, but his involvement was such that, that you know, Kubrick asked him to write a script, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, let's go back to A Clockwork Orange uh, in a bit more focus. You mentioned uh, Kubrick's research, particularly for the locations of the film. Uh, can you tell from the archival material what what the brief for a clockwork orange was was it was kubrick trying to create a utopian environment or a dystopian environment again that's a really interesting um question because obviously a lot of the research material is um things like you know architecture magazines and cutouts from architecture magazines and a lot of these are sort of obviously because they're architecture magazines uh you know published by Reba Architectural Digest that kind of thing they are looking at these kind of modern uh, brutalist buildings in a very utopian way in a very um presenting it as sort of the latest modern architecture so you have this in in the research there's certainly a focus on the idea of the architecture and and the look of the film being utopian but obviously it's difficult to say whether Kubrick agreed with that. That's just the research that he's he's bringing. There isn't sort of any brief that says that he wants it to be um, utopian or dystopian. You can only sort of really gather that from what he was looking at. But then interestingly, you know, it's, it's the same thing for 2001. A lot of the research for 2001 A Space Odyssey, um, again, is, is looking at the future in terms of a lot, you know, a lot of the people who who provided research or provided ideas, um, a lot of the companies who were contacted for two thousand and one, are really presenting it in this. Look how great the future is going to be, and then arguably the way that the film presents the future is not like that. So it's difficult to sort of get a sense from archival documents what Kubrick really thought. But certainly, what's interesting is that the archival documents are all really focusing, um, that you know, this sort of secondary research that he was doing really fo- presents the future, presents the the architecture in a really positive light so but whether yeah whether he agreed with that is is not is not obvious from the material that's interesting it, it could be perhaps that he was going for a, a sort of contrast between the the thematic uh import of the film and and the the utopian architecture mm. um, because you don't really get much of the world in burgess's novel you get the flat blocks which are described essentially like the flat blocks he saw in Leningrad. So I guess at one point they would have been utopian, but when Burgess went in the 60s, they were they were quite run down and, and dystopian. So it's hard to say what Burgess's intention was there 
really in in terms of creating the world yeah and it's an interesting that you know the film and the book really came out at that sort of turn in i suppose public opinion about about brutalist architecture that um it sort of went in the you know eyes of people from being this really sort of brave new world architecture of the future to to, to seeming run down and and not a pleasant place so it's sort of both the book and the film really are on that i think almost the cusp of that turn in the way that people saw um saw brutalist architecture specifically that's interesting and uh, we've talked briefly about kubrick and burgess's collaborations on a clockwork orange but um the two men collaborated on two other films, uh, one more than the other, I suppose. So the two films in Napoleon and mm-hmm. Eyes Wide Shut, which um, we have a, a photocopy of the Arthur Schnitzler novel, um, Traum novel, that Kubrick sent Burgess in, I think, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, so uh what do you what do you have in in the archive that that sort of sheds light on this this collaboration especially for those those two films and and how does the kubrick archive speak to the burgess archive in in manchester so interestingly i really don't think that we have a huge amount um about the collaboration so for example that um that photocopied uh story that you mentioned we don't have sort of the original of that so that was obviously sent out um and as I said we don't have a huge amount of correspondence between the two of them it's important to mention that most of the Napoleon material remains um with the Kubrick family and their estate so we you know I I can't speak to that but I think that it this really kind of speaks the importance of you know collaboration and kind of connection between archives that are related because with especially I would say with the Clockwork Orange material, items in both of the archives can only really be sort of fully contextualised if, you know, someone is researching in both of the archives. So it's actually quite interesting because in archive theory, there's this uh, conceptual idea um, of this thing called the fonds. It's F-O-N-D-S, it's a French word. But in this context, in archival theory context, this means it's the sort of conceptual whole body of records that have ever been created by one creator and um, in practice you're supposed to never split the fonds right so you would never say oh we'll take some of this material but we won't take the rest of it um, but so theoretically everything by one creator remains in this full sort of body of work and then you get that context you, you the documentation retains its kind of original context as much as possible but in practice obviously a fonts can never really exist in just one archive so you know we're the only Stanley Kubrick archive in the world but of course we don't have every single thing that Kubrick ever created and a lot of that material will probably be held elsewhere so for example in the Burgess archive you hold a lot of the letters that Kubrick wrote we don't have those because they were sent to Burgess Um, and you know the same thing is true um, of the Burgess archive so we have material that was created by Burgess and then sent to Kubrick um, so really the two archives together need to be and, and obviously other archives you need to see all of the archives to sort of recreate this this whole body of material they're all going to be slightly partial and, and do you think work is being being done to to try and achieve that that contextual reading of, of those archives 
I think so. I think I, I, what I really hope is that, you know, there can be more collaboration, almost maybe more mapping of which archives hold which, what material, which is something that I don't think it's often done, especially in archives, and maybe it's a resource issue. But what I think could be really useful is to have, yeah, almost a map of, of where in the world kind of material by one creator. So, for example, Kubrick or Burgess is held so that researchers can really get a sense of everything rather than archives just saying sort of, you know, we are the Kubrick archive, we are the Burgess archive. And um, so often I think people might assume that that they will just be looking there rather than needing to kind of look more holistically um, at the archives of, of collaborators. But yeah, I think that there is certainly been a move towards this I, in, in the archive sector generally. Um, but I think that now there's more of a, a sort of an academic interest in archive research methodologies um, than perhaps there was uh, in film studies in, a few years ago. So I think that that will also help. Um, sort of hopefully create these kind of resources like research resources that that's really interesting and i think uh there's more that that we can do at the burgess archive to to try and locate where burgess's work is because burgess's uh archive really is split over over three possibly four locations so um because the clockwork orange typescript is in a Canadian university mm. in McMaster. So um there is more that we could do with our with our sort of messaging I think that 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 uh tries to sort of use those archives in collaboration with with our own archive. Mm, um, definitely. I think it tends to be um it's weird because arch archivists um as a sort of professional body are generally very collaborative but then there's also this sort of tendency to work just in your own archive whereas mm. I think more kind of um sharing of data about where things are held is really useful for everybody and also you know from my point of view as a Stanley Kubrick archivist it is really helpful and useful for me to know where other Kubrick material is 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 held um because again it it enables me to see the full context of the archive it's not just about um sort of academic researchers it's also about archivists themselves because anything that we can do to kind of improve the quality of the information that we hold about certain items is is helpful but i guess um as far as you're concerned there are archives that haven't haven't appeared yet that will have kubrick stuff in them for example the stephen king archive perhaps which as far as i'm aware isn't isn't public or, yeah yeah and you know other directors who he worked really closely with as well. So Spielberg potentially will have loads. And then there's also individuals who he worked with who might never have an archive, you know, dedicated to their work, um, but who will hold material that, that speaks to sort of that collaboration. So it's a really, that there, there will always be some material that just won't, won't enter the public eye because and that's the case with all archives that they're all really partial but there's this danger that people see them as being complete and I think that's partly to do with with messaging you know we say the Kubrick archive is really unique in that it's so complete which it is you know it, Kubrick did keep a lot of material and he was involved in a lot of different aspects of production so it is really unique um but it's not completely complete and I think that sometimes the subtlety the nuance gets lost 
Yeah. And uh, do you, have you had many donations from people that that have maybe had letters or or worked with Kubrick in a in a sort of fringe capacity? Um not really, although the most significant one that we have had, which is incredibly useful, is the Joy Clough archive. So Joy um worked with Kubrick on 2001 a space obviously so she worked in the art department and she actually created the uh the sort of tabletop models for the moon and she um has donated quite a lot of material not just actually about her work with Kubrick because obviously she then went on to have a really successful career in in other films um so we actually have the whole of her archive um but obviously the 2001 material really really links in and completes part of the picture uh for the Kubrick archive but we haven't had really a huge amount other than that okay um and just a a, a final few questions mm-hmm. do you think um judging from from archival material that that you hold in the Kubrick archive do you think a clockwork orange relates to Kubrick's other work in any way yeah it's interesting again because it relates to his later films, I suppose, in that um, you can see sort of similarities um, in theme, I think, across all of Kubrick's kind of films, but also in terms of similarities in, in crew, in crew members. So you do get a lot of continuity in terms of people who worked on the films and you see lots of the same names coming up in the archive um, for sort of, you know, one film after another. So, for example, Milena Cannonero, who started working with Kubrick on a Clock Orange, but then obviously went on to work with him um, for other films, later films. So you you get that kind of continuity in terms of just the people who are involved. So there's similarity in that way. And then there's an interesting kind of um, similarity in that London is used quite a lot. So obviously A Clockwork Orange was shot on location um, in mainly in London. Um, and some of Kubrick's other films were shot uh, using London as well. So for example, Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut are the two most obvious ones where London, you sort of see London places, London streets, London um, areas in the film. But what's interesting is that in both of those two later films, you know, they are really sort of stand-ins for other places. So Full Metal Jacket, Becton Gasworks is used as a stand-in for Vietnam and in Eyes Wide Shut there is some there's some footage of London streets but obviously that it's pretending to be New York whereas in A Clockwork Orange whilst obviously it's not London because A Clockwork Orange isn't really it, it, it's not set in London it's set in a sort of dystopian near future world um it's not that London is standing in for another real world location in the same way so it's sort of the same but it's also being used slightly differently I think Okay. Uh, okay, and one one final question. More generally, how would you characterize Kubrick's legacy, and why do you think uh, Kubrick has captured the imagination of cinema goers in in the way that he did? I mean, it's a difficult question to answer. I think certainly um, the thing that has really characterize people's reactions to Kubrick is that that I think people really react to the visual quality of the films and that's what you see 
kind of referenced a lot, both in sort of popular culture, because the films are hugely referenced in, in kind of popular culture. You know, you have um, catchphrases like here's Johnny, you have um, costume design. So, you know, the Drew costumes have been so referenced. But then you also get um, a lot of other film directors referencing Kubrick, especially visually. Um, and so you, you, you sort of see people uh, referencing like a look or referencing an idea um, and that legacy then means that you know it's carried on in in visual references and films today but I think another part of his legacy or something that is really um, making his legacy kind of sort of continue is that people are able through things like the Kubrick traveling exhibition which started I think in 2005 and is still going today um and most recently that was in London and it was really hugely successful and I think you know that means that the public are able to see kind of Kubrick's creative process like his working methods you know and they're able to see that in a way that they maybe can't with some other film directors so I think it it really helps people to see process and people really to enjoy seeing process and obviously the archive um also allows you to see the process behind Kubrick's films so you know it's his legacy is sort of continuing in a sort of almost educational way that's not just through watching the films you can also learn about how the films were made great and uh I don't know if you've seen Ready Player One the uh Steven Spielberg film that has a huge Kubrick uh, section in the in the middle of it with the the Overlook Hotel gets recreated completely. Yeah, yeah, and that obviously that's Spielberg sort of paying tribute and having a bit of fun. But yeah, definitely. And there's you know there's other just things like the use of things like one point perspective. Um, there are a lot of film directors I think you know have have said that they are really influenced by Kubrick or that they really admire the films of Kubrick. So for example, another person, um, the Coen Brothers, I can think of. Um, again you see those references so yeah exactly sometimes they're more obvious than others but I think that that's really kept kept his legacy going is the fact that he's really almost like a director's director a lot of directors really like his work great well thank you Georgina for for talking to us uh today yeah thank you you're very welcome you have been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast for more information about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.